he notes that Moses and Elijah have a conversation with Jesus about his coming crucifixion. Contrary to the disciples, Moses and Elijah knew good and well what Jesus had come to this earth to do. He had come to redeem us. Now, not surprisingly, the disciples are terrified <laughs> at this point. Uh, verse 6, I love that. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. <laughs> yeah, you bet. You would have been too. Um, they didn't know what to say. They didn't know how to react. They're just standing there gobsmacked <laughs> at this situation that's playing out uh, before them. So Peter, always the word vomiter, um, he volunteers you know, to, uh, to break the awkward silence. <laughs> right? So Peter just can't handle the awkwardness. So he's like, let me shoot in there with something. So he, <laughs> he says forward in verse 5 with a suggestion. He says this in verse 5. So Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, the Greek word for shelters here in verse 5 is literally tabernacles. And so some translations that you guys have probably actually, it does say tabernacles. Uh, now, why would Peter suggest building tabernacles for the three men standing in front of him? Well, it's because on the mountain, Peter is seeing the glory of Christ and the glory of these three men. He is seeing that, and then at the same time, he is seeing his own wickedness. He's seeing his own sin. You see, in the Old Testament, the tabernacle was built for what? What was the purpose of the tabernacle? Well, it was built to enable sinful Israelites to have communion with a holy and glorious God. So Peter here feels naked in front of these three men. He feels exposed. And so he needs something to protect him from their glory. Because he sees that he is a sinner. Peter did the same thing at Jesus' first miracle when he witnessed Jesus' first miracle with the fish. Do you remember how Peter responded to that miracle? He said, get away from me, Lord. For I'm a sinful man. You see, this is what the glory of God does. We see his glory and we immediately, <laughs> we, we got to get away from it. Because <laughs> he is glorious and we are not. He is light and we are dark. And so Peter here is doing a very rational thing, actually. He's trying to figure out a way to buffer <laughs> this situation. Some, I need something to get between you all's glory and my wickedness. Let's look at verses 7 through 8. And then a cloud appeared and covered them. And a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Now, if you were just reading straight through the Bible like straight through, start at the beginning and just read straight through, and then you got to verse 7, your heart would immediately just sink. 
would just sink. Because you would know exactly what this cloud means. And it ain't good. <laughs> if this was a Hollywood film, then at this point in the story, the background music would shift to a minor key <laughs> and you would hear the cellos go, dun, dun, dun. A cloud moving over a mountain in this manner is a terrifying thing in the Bible. Why? Because the cloud is the holy presence of Almighty God. And sinful men cannot stand in the holy presence of God. So Peter's fear of being exposed, of being naked, has now turned into a nightmare when the cloud comes. But then, something totally unexpected happens. Totally unexpected. We have a twist in the story. We have a twist. God the Father speaks from the cloud. And what does he say? He says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And when the cloud receded, it was only Jesus standing there. Look at verse 8. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus, except Jesus. Now, notice, the father doesn't say a word about Moses or Elijah. Doesn't say a word. He only talks about his son. What is God saying? God is saying, it's time to stop fixating on the law. And it's time to stop fixating on the prophets. And instead, it is time to fix your eyes on my beloved son. He is who all of the law and all of the prophets were pointing to. And he is here. Listen to him. The one who the rest of the Hebrew scriptures were talking about is here. Listen to him. As great as Moses and Elijah were, they were great. And as great as their roles are in redemptive history, they don't hold the candle to Jesus. They don't hold a candle. You see, Jesus is the very one whom all of redemptive history was about. And this became clear in verse 8. When the cloud recedes, the Father takes Moses and Elijah away and puts forward his son. 
And this is essentially the job of the New Testament church. Is now the law and the prophets take a back seat and we put forward the Son. The Son is here. Listen to Him. And the Father is telling us, you don't have to build a tabernacle, Peter. Oh, you are wicked. No doubt about that. I'm not denying that. <laughs> but you don't have to build a tabernacle to protect yourself from your sin. No, because you see, Peter, you are standing in the presence of the tabernacle with a capital T. And he will deal with your sin once and for all. And you and I, we need to be continually reminded of this. That though we are wicked and, and almighty God is holy and righteous, we don't have to back away. We don't have to have a, we don't have to build a tabernacle anymore because the tabernacle has come and he has redeemed us and he has brought us out of our darkness and into the light. And so now we can come boldly to the throne room of grace, knowing that we will receive grace and mercy in our time of need. Jesus alone is our mediator between us and a holy God. And because of Jesus, we have no reason to fear the glory cloud of the Father. In the presence of God Almighty, we can sing, and we can laugh, and we can dance, and we can worship because of Jesus. Now, it's easy at this point to become a little jealous of Peter, James, and John, isn't it? I mean, this is just way too cool. This is way too cool of an experience. And I know many spend, many Christians, they'll spend their whole Christian lives chasing after these super enlightening mountaintop experiences, if you will. They're chasing mountaintop experiences. And so they'll go from church to church to church. They'll go from revival to revival, looking for the mountaintop. They think, boy, man, if I could just have a mountaintop experience like Peter, James, and John had. Man, you know, I would know God more. And I'd be a better Christian. You know, and I keep chasing it, but God never really has given me anything like that. Well, if that's how you think here today, you're right. God has never given you anything like he gave the disciples in our story today. No, he hasn't. He's given you something better. He's given you something much better. You see, because Peter, who is here, <laughs> he's here on the Mount of Transfiguration. He would go on later to write First and Second Peter. And here is what he says, if you want to make a note here. Here's what he says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. I want you to get a load of this. <laughs> here is what Peter says. 
This is remarkable. Verse 16 of 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter says this. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Right? We just saw that. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such a declaration as this was made to him by the majestic glory. Quote, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. End quote. And we ourselves heard this declaration made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so, we have the prophetic word made more sure. To which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture becomes a matter of someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So, Peter, one of the three men here who witnessed the transfiguration on the mountain, he wrote that you and I have something more sure than that experience. Something more concrete. Something more profound. And what is that? It's right here. It is the Holy Scriptures. Peter says, this right here is more sure than the transfiguration experience that he had. Peter himself said that. You know, one of the fellows who was there. <laughs> now, Peter, wait a minute. That's insane. Peter, come on. That's just crazy talk, Peter. You're telling me this book is more sure than that experience you had? Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. Think about it. This same Peter, the same Peter, who saw the glory of Christ shine like the sun before him, on this high mountain, would not very long after coming down the mountain deny and blaspheme Christ three times. Not very long after coming down the mountain, he would blaspheme Christ. We think, oh, if I could just have more mountaintop experiences. I'd be good. No, you wouldn't. 
No, you wouldn't. While you're chasing experiences, you're forgetting the fact that the very same God who spoke through the cloud on the mountain speaks continuously to you today through this book. The same God that spoke in the cloud speaks right here. You can hear that very voice that these three men heard on that mountain every time you open this book. Every single time. You hold in your hands this morning your mountaintop experience. You hold, you're holding it. This is it. Martin Luther said that the Bible is not only the story of Jesus, but the very source of his presence. The very source of his presence. You want to have a meeting with God? Read your Bible. You want to have a mountaintop experience? Read your Bible. You want to hear God speak? Read your Bible. You want to hear God speak audibly? Read your Bible out loud. Sadly, so many Christians don't see what a tremendous gift this book is. They keep chasing something more, something more than this. Which in Peter's eyes is a little bizarre. <laughs> it's a little bizarre. You see, we think of Bible reading as just one more religious box we have to check. You know, well, I had my quiet time this morning. I you know, prayed a little bit, check. Well, I read my Bible today. I read my two chapters. Check. Check. Check, exactly. Boom. Check. Did it. You see, we think Bible reading is something we do for God. Huh? How silly. Bible reading is not something we do for God. It is something God does for us. He speaks through the cloud to us in this book. He meets with us here. He wraps his arms around us here. He comforts us here. He encourages us here. He convicts us here. And he raises us to new life here. This is where he speaks. And what does he speak? What does he say? Well, essentially, on every single page, he is saying the same thing. He said, to Peter, James, and John here on the mountain. He is saying, 
This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. On every page, the Spirit is pointing to Jesus. On every page. You see, we must understand that though other Bible characters are great, they are nothing compared to Christ. Are nothing. In fact, their only purpose is to get us to Christ. That's the only purpose. The point of all Scripture is Jesus. Jesus said so himself. In Luke's gospel, Luke writes about a conversation that Jesus had with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And Luke writes this. He says, and beginning with Moses, remember Moses? And all the prophets. (laughs) So we have Moses and Elijah here on the road to Emmaus. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Christ explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Concerning himself. Every page of scripture is revealing the glory of Christ. Every passage you come to either promises, prepares for, points to, reveals our need for, or results from the person and work of Jesus. Every page, every scripture, every single one. Either promises, prepares for, points to, reveals our need for, or results from the person and work of Jesus. We hold in our hands 66 books telling one story about one name. The name above all names. That is what this book is about. So that's number one. We see God's glory on the mountaintop, which for us, we hold in our hands. We see God's glory in God's word. But where else do we see it? Point number two in your outline. And lastly, we'll close with this. Number two, so we see his glory in the valley. In the valley. We see it on the mountaintop. And we see it in the valley. Look at verses 9 and 10. Verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. You see, Jesus' mission cannot be compromised. It cannot be, and it will not be. Peter, James, and John must keep their mouths shut about this experience. Why? So that Jesus will not be arrested too soon. Jesus has in his mind the exact hour that he will be taken. And so Jesus is orchestrating all of these events to make sure that he is arrested at a very particular time. And the disciples understood that they needed to be quiet. But they still really did not get at all what this talk of suffering and resurrection is all about. As verse 10 makes clear. You see, the Jews had no concept of a resurrection. 
None other than the final resurrection at the end of days. That's the only concept that they had. And not all Jews even had that, really. But some Jews did have a final resurrection in mind. But they certainly had no thoughts of an individual person dying and then being resurrected to glory. They had no concept of that. And so they're pretty confused as to what Jesus is talking about. (laughs) They're pretty confused. And so the disciples questioned Jesus. Look at verse 11. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? So what they're doing here is they're referencing a prophecy from the Old Testament book of Malachi. And they're asking Jesus to help them understand all this. Put the puzzle pieces together for us, Lord. We're confused. And all Jesus does is blow their minds further. (laughs) Look at what he says in verses 12 and 13. Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. You see, the disciples were wondering when Elijah was going to come back. You know, they're like, wait a minute, we kind of just saw Elijah? So it's like, is he fixing to come? (laughs) Like, what's happening here? And Jesus is like, oh, no, no, no. Elijah's already come. He's already come. Oh, wait a minute, what? When did Elijah come? Jesus? Well, Jesus is saying that Elijah is John the Baptist. Is John the Baptist. Now, this is not some pagan idea of reincarnation here. It's not that Elijah has literally been reincarnated as John the Baptist. That's not what's happening. It's that John the Baptist picked up the prophetic mantle of Elijah to prepare the way of the Lord. And what did John the Baptist do in preparing for the Lord? Jesus says he suffered. He suffered. And then Jesus says what the Son of Man must do. And what's that? Jesus says that he must suffer also. You see, after the mountaintop experience, Jesus immediately takes his disciples back to the place where we all live, which is on the way to the cross. After the brightness of the transfiguration, Jesus has to get their eyes immediately back into the darkness. He needed them to see his glory on the mountaintop, and now he needs them to see his glory in the valley. Do not miss what Jesus is teaching here. You see, our tendency is to always look for Jesus' glory in the spectacular, in the goose pimple experiences. 
and the miracles. But Jesus is saying here that His glory is found just as much in the ordinary, in the mundane, and even in the suffering of life. So, to the single mom here today, there is glory in your struggles. To the couple whose marriage is hanging on by a thread, there is glory in your striving. To the one who is suffering physically or mentally, there is glory in your pain. To the one who is dealing with tragedy or heartache, there is glory in your tears. There is. And here is the main reason why. Although there are multiple reasons for our suffering, here is the main reason why there is glory to be found there. It's because your suffering forces you into the arms of Jesus. And it's almost always suffering that does this. Very few things force us into the arms of Jesus more than our tears. You see, Jesus' suffering not only lets him identify with you, but it lets you identify with him. This is why we see in the New Testament, the disciples consider it an honor to suffer. Why? Because Jesus suffered. And they would say, oh, what a joy. What a thrill to be able to suffer as our Savior suffered. What an honor. What a privilege to suffer with Him. And folks, there just is no greater glory than that. There just isn't any. This is why Charles Spurgeon said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me upon the rock of ages. I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me upon the rock of ages. And Horatio Spafford, he famously wrote something similar after the death of his, the drowning death of his young daughters. He wrote this as he was sailing in a boat over the spot, the very spot where his daughters died. He wrote this. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well. It is well with my soul. Let's pray together.